Welcome to the Storytellers Live podcast, where everyday women share real and personal stories of encounters with God. I'm your host, Robin, and I'm here with Dawn, Katie, and Lindy. And at Storytellers Live, our prayer is that you would meet God in a new way through these stories, that you would know that you're not alone, and that walls would be broken down and community would be built. Today's story is Kelly from Memphis. Well, Robin, I always admire how open and raw our storytellers are, and Kelly is absolutely no different. She speaks boldly and candidly of her past struggles with addiction, and after a near-death experience, she shares how God helped her break this bondage that she says she lived in for years. What I love is as she tells us in her story, she said, you know what? Everybody falls down. It's how you get up that means everything. So I know her story is going to encourage many of you who may struggle with addiction or you know somebody who does. So here's Kelly. Well, as mentioned, my name is Kelly Turnage and I am from Memphis and I share my story a lot, but it's hard to um, get up here and not compare my insides with y'all's outsides because I'm really nervous. And no, it's so calm drinking your coffee. coffee. <laughs> I think my hand will be shaking. So, <laughs> uh, no, and I, you know, I prayed so much this week and this morning that God would just move me out of the way. You know, remove me from the bondage of self that I may better do His will. That He be the one glorified because it is now history, but it's His story to tell. And we serve a God who works for a for weak, twisted deceitful people to break them free from the bondages that they go through in life and uh, and that's what he's he's done and is continuing to do in my life and um, as Margaret said earlier we talk about our stories and I have a fear of sharing the facts and not reminding who I speak with about the scarlet thread that runs throughout all of our lives. So I pray this time would be a reflection of the miracles that he's performed and still does today, because I still see it. So um, normally when I'm in a meeting, I introduce myself and say, I'm Kelly, I'm an alcoholic, and the group responds in unison and says, Hi, Kelly. <laughs> so um, I am uh, originally from Florence, Alabama. I was born in 1980, I'll be 40 this year. And Lord willing, March 9th, I'll celebrate four years clean and sober. Mm-hmm. His grace and mercy, I'm telling you what. Um, We moved to Memphis uh, when I was one. So depending on who you are and where you're from, I'm from Alabama or I'm from Memphis. But I grew up here in Memphis and um, grew up in a wonderful home. My youngest sister Avery is here today, and I'm so excited to have some really familiar faces here. I could get really emotional thinking about that scarlet thread and how the relationships and friendships in this room have been woven throughout my journey here in Memphis. So I grew up here, went to Briarcrest, um, kindergarten, actually K-4 Miss Fashion's class, um, through your senior year. And we grew up in Kirby Woods, and we went to First of Anne, and I did gymnastics at Wells Anne. And so everything in my world was kind of in this Poplar 240 bubble. Um, and I had a, a girl that sat behind me at church the other day whose kids were in school at Briarcrest, and she said, do you regret that you grew up in a bubble? <laughs> you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic and drug addict, and I'm at a point in my life where I don't really care if I drank myself into it, if I was born with it, or if I just had a lot of trauma in my life. You know what? It was part of God's plan. So 
I didn't tell her that, actually. She didn't know my story. child who is strong-willed, independent, stubborn, get out of my way or you'll be part of the bay. Uh, that, that was me. And today I'm learning that even though those things on paper are still true, you know, there's things that have changed my life too. And um, so, yeah, I'm still that person. Uh, I'm still strong-willed and it served me well in some areas of life. Grew up in a wonderful, wonderful family here in Memphis. And my sisters and I are all four years apart. And um, my parents just raised us in a great home and instilled in us at a very young age um, to trust Christ and follow him all the days of your life. And that's what I wanted to do. And I was a gymnast. I was very competitive. I'm still very competitive. I have to remind myself that it's okay not to be the best at things. And uh, I had a gymnastics coach that said something to me that made me think that I needed to be thinner in order to be better, in order to be the best at 12 years old. And in 1991, 92, there wasn't the World Wide Web, there wasn't Facebook, you know, how can I help my daughter recover from anorexia? It was, it was odd. It was tough. My parents didn't know what to do. Um, they threw me into therapy. I had a great therapist. But that's where really my addictive tendencies began to show because I was, I wanted that control over my life. And sometimes we talk about control and we say, Oh, it's all about control. Well, what is control? What is what is control? It's not trusting the Lord. Well, what is control? It's fear. It's fear that I'm not going to get something I want. It's fear that I'm going to lose something I have. And those fears still surface today. So I was I was severely anorexic at 12 years old and, and got better. I got I wanted to get back to good because I wanted to go to Auburn. Some of y'all I was at Auburn with. And I got good enough as far as the outsides were concerned in order to go off to college. And Auburn was a special place. It still is such a special place. I have some incredible memories from being at Auburn. And um, they were some of the healthiest years, really. Some of y'all remember. I was involved in Campus Crusade and just really wanted to um, really just shine Jesus shine, you know? It was really just such a healthy time. I didn't struggle with an eating disorder when I was there, but I was missing something and I, I knew I needed a boyfriend. I knew I needed a boyfriend and I found me a boyfriend that was Cajun, Catholic, fun, life of the party. And he was, he was everything that I wanted people to think of me. I wanted them to think I was that way because I'm not naturally a funny person. I'm not, I'm really wired tight. <laughs> and I don't know about y'all, but I have to pay a lot of money to relax, you know? <laughs> I don't just like sit on the couch and relax. <laughs> That's, you know, people that are, that are like that, y'all get it. And I see some nods. <laughs> and um, boyfriend, I found me a boyfriend. And so he took me down to Mardi Gras. And he said, because at this point, I mean, I, I lived a good girl world. I didn't know any different. I didn't know what I didn't know. I mean, I, I wasn't a drinker. I didn't really date around. I'd not had sex just hung out with the girls that I grew up with, and that was what I knew. I didn't know that, you know, I didn't know any different. 
So whether I was naive or grew up in a bubble, it just is what it is. I don't regret it. I love the people that I grew up with. And um, so he said to me, I was, I was 21, he said, Kelly, you, you've not been drinking for long, and I know you're new to this. You really need to pace yourself. Well, <laughs> I still to this day don't know what pace yourself means. <laughs> I'm an all-or-nothing person. It's, it is, if a little's good, a lot's better. And so I was off to the races that weekend, and I got drunk, and I loved the feeling. Alcoholics drink for the effect produced by alcohol. And I love that feeling of being able to quote unquote relax and be funny and be a good girlfriend. And I was just, I felt madly obsessed with this guy and followed him to Birmingham, even though we'd been broken up for a long time right out of college and found me a job that I was in real estate in the early 2000s and um, anybody and everybody could buy a house at that point. And so real estate was great, the market was great, work was good. We reconnected and, and got married. And so we were, we, we moved to Birmingham. Well, we were living in Birmingham and um, it wasn't too much longer after we had gotten married. You know, everybody comes into relationships with baggage, regardless of um, the good, the bad, the ugly in their life. And so we both came into this marriage really not prepared for what life might throw at us. Um, I had a complete relapse with anorexia after we got married. And, um, not too much longer after that, uh, there was a medical professional in Birmingham who uh, told me what I was going to do to him. And he said, if you tell anybody, I'll kill you. Well, um, I understand in the public eye, as we look at this whole movement of women who are coming forward, talking about men who have taken advantage of them, why they don't talk about it when it happens. I get it. I understand that. Um, because I just wanted to run. I'm a runner. Not not an actual runner. I'm an escaper runner. <laughs> I just wanted to escape the way I was feeling. I was scared to death. And so uh, I manipulated the situation to look as though it would be best for his career if we moved down to Mobile. And so we did. We moved down to Mobile where he was from. And um, his business went like this and we went like this. I started drinking. And I started drinking alcoholically. I drank every day. And drugs didn't come into the picture until later on. But I was an alcoholic from the get-go, man. I mean, I was already an addict. You know, I wanted to escape the way I felt. And so um, we weren't married long, and I um, got drunk and cheated on my husband. And that, that led to a very long, costly divorce. And uh, there, were, there was a lot of heartache throughout that. Um, and I don't remember a lot of it, actually. Pretty much blacked out during that time. So he told me, if you stay in Mobile, you know, I'm, this is my town. You don't need to stay here. <laughs> and, well, you know, strong-willed, independent, get out of my way or be part of the Bay kind of people like me. I'm like, oh, watch me. You know? <laughs> watch me. I'll stay here. And I, and I, try, I mean, 2007, 8, 9, it's not the best time for real estate anyway. Uh, I was in a city I didn't know. He was very rooted in Mobile, and I didn't know anybody in Mobile except for my drinking friends. And I tried to keep a job in a restaurant. I tried to keep a job at a bar, and I couldn't show up for work. And things started going dark really fast. I remember coming home for holidays or special occasions when I would get presents because that's pretty much the only time I would come home. And I distinctly remember telling myself, like, don't get drunk, don't get drunk, don't get, you can do it, Kelly. Well, there was never a time I came home where I wasn't passed out somewhere, being put on a plane, going back to wherever I lived at the time. And so uh, eventually in Mobile, um, and it, my life in, in drugs and alcohol was full of loneliness 
it was full of promiscuity. I want to pause here for a minute and just tell you addiction, addiction doesn't discriminate. I know people who are doctors and pastors of churches who are recovering addicts. I know people who, like me, didn't drink till I was 21, didn't have sex till I was married, who are recovering alcoholics and drug addicts. And um, so if you know somebody, because I wasn't that person growing up that somebody would have pinpointed as, I mean, a lot of y'all knew me from growing up, that somebody would have said, oh yeah, she's definitely going to wind up being one of those. You know? And I am. And I was. Um, it's what happened. And um, So anyway, I ran out of money is pretty much what happened in Mobile. I had totaled a bunch of cars. I was raped in Mobile. And I remember when that happened, that was the defining moment for me of I will do anything I can to escape the way I feel. And I came back to Memphis in 2010, and my parents, they didn't know. It was kind of like me being anorexic at the time, like when it happened. They didn't know what to do with me. They weren't sure if it was just the trauma I'd been through, the divorce and everything. Maybe I was just going through a phase. I'd never been through a really wild drinking phase before, but but I had to go somewhere. And so they, um, they allowed me to come back home and work for my dad for a little while. And I started having a lot of physical symptoms from drinking. Because when you drink every day, and you pass out, and you black out, and you get sick, eventually your body starts to tell you something is not right. But I did in Memphis the same thing that I did in Mobile. I was back involved in church, and I did downline. <laughs> Many of you are familiar with downline in Memphis. I did downline that whole year. And I'd show up and put my mask on and act like everything was okay. Well, uh, things continue to get worse. And I, I needed an escape plan. I needed an escape plan. I needed to get out of Memphis. The problem is, I, I moved to a lot of different places, but wherever I was, there I was. You know, I couldn't escape me. And but I found this great job online in Austin, and uh, went to Austin with this. I mean, I remember my mom and I driving down to Austin, about to move me in. This is five years into my decade long of drinking, and listening to Caleb with this like renewed spirit of. You know, Lord, I want to do your will here. This is a fresh start. Never did I believe that God had abandoned me. I still loved him. I didn't realize that I was a sick person and needed to get well. I thought bad things had happened. I was a victim drinker. You would drink too if you'd been through what I've been through. That's the way I lived my drinking. So I moved down to Austin, Texas, lived downtown. Austin's a neat city. Um, This was in 2011. And I lived in Austin for five years. And reconnected with uh, some folks that I that, that discipled me in college at Auburn. They, he was a pastor of a church. He and his wife mentored me in, through Campus Crusade. And that was, that was a moment of, oh, I'm supposed to be here. This is, this is great. You know, I am I'm reconnected with the Frickenschmitz. You don't know the Frickenschmitz because you only know one Frickenschmitz, you know? <laughs> and so Tim and Alyssa Frickenschmitz. Um, but see, the problem is that I was, I didn't realize I had that much of a problem. I wasn't willing to admit. I was still in complete denial. I couldn't sleep because I was drinking all day, every day. I lost jobs. I lost my dignity. Continued on in a life of promiscuity. Had a lot of physical symptoms from drinking, but I found drugs that worked to keep me going for a little bit longer. So I continue to just cover up the emotions, escape the way I felt, whether it's food or alcohol or drugs. I knew there was something that would work that would keep me from feeling what I was feeling, and I didn't want to feel. So my best friend Sarah moved to Austin in 2015 with her husband from Memphis, Sarah Walton, Sarah Pettit, and you all know Sarah. 
and she, I mean, she's a Memphis girl. She came to support her husband and she had two little girls and she moved there and I was so excited she was there. Well, she wasn't very excited after a little while seeing me black and blue all the time. I would wake up in sordid places, not knowing how I got there, where I was, or who the person was next to me. It didn't happen once or twice. It happened a lot over the years. And uh, Sarah saw this up close and personal. She knew me growing up, and she knew this was not me. And she came to me with Alyssa Frickin Schmidt, the first of 2016, and she said, and they both said, Kelly, we're going to have to remove ourselves from your life. This is not, you're going to have to get help. I thought, you know what? This is a perfect time to shut everybody up and learn how to drink like normal people. This is great. I'm going to go to treatment and shut everybody up, and I won't drink around those people anymore because they think I have a problem. So I did. I went to treatment in February of 2016 here in Memphis, actually. I acted like it was not a big deal. I'd never been to treatment before. And I wasn't willing to admit I was an alcoholic either. So I had a boy, I always had a boyfriend or a guy around and I had a boyfriend in Austin and I found me a new boyfriend at treatment and got in trouble for following him around and not taking the program seriously because I didn't take it seriously because I didn't believe I had a problem. I just thought bad things had happened to me. So I left treatment. I moved back to Austin. My mom came with me. This is four years ago today. I had a friend that had recently passed away and was having a funeral, and I left mom at my apartment, and I said I was going to the funeral, and I got drunk, and I didn't make it to the funeral, and I, I kicked my mom out of my apartment. When she tells her story, she says, that was the moment that I thought to myself, I might not ever see my daughter again. I lied. So my boyfriend in Austin came over and brought a bottle of champagne to celebrate the fact that I'd spent 30 days in treatment. <laughs> <laughs> That was March 5th-ish. I was supposed to go back to work March 7th. See, I'd, I'd kept a job, and I'd worked really hard to keep a job throughout all these years because I needed benefits so that I could have doctors prescribe me medication that I didn't need and because I needed money to support my habit. started drinking. My tolerance was a lot lower. Supposed to go back to work March 7th. I've been on medical leave for six months. I was on medical leave several times over the course of the years because... I needed that time off to drink. <laughs> and if they were going to pay my benefits, great. Um, this is the self-will-run riot, is what we call it. I was so selfish and so self-centered while my sisters are getting married and creating families. And um, I didn't show up for work March 7th. And, my, and I didn't show up for work March 8th. And so the HR person at the company I had recently gotten a job for called and fired me. I don't remember that, really. Um, I was supposed to have lunch with um, my friend Sarah, my best friend Sarah, um, on March. Uh, actually, I think originally we'd scheduled it for the 11th, but we changed it, something with the kids, and we changed it to March 9th, 2016. I didn't show up for lunch. You know, I'd made plans with one of y'all for lunch, and, you know, you may have thought, like, well, she'll text me. She must have gotten hung up with work or something like that. Sarah knew. Sarah knew something's wrong. She knew I hadn't. I just acted like everything was fine. Everything's great. Yeah, treatment was great. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> and she knew. She knew better. And so she came looking for me. And she saw that my car was at my apartment and that I was uh, not answering the door. And she called 911 and the paramedics bus busted down the door and found me down unresponsive in a coma. Uh, they rushed me to Seton Hospital in Austin, and they put me on life support, and I stayed like that for days on end. My mom got in the car and started driving. 
and it was stormy and she had to stop along the way. And I just think about how scared she must have been. She walked in the hospital room and I am hooked up to things everywhere. They wound up um, seeing that there was brain activity and that I was gonna make it. Um, but I was in a coma for, um, I think 10, 11 days, something like that. Um, I don't remember anything in my life from about March 4th until I came out of a coma with a hole in my neck from where they tricked me and um, with wires everywhere. Not, I was so angry. Uh, coming out of a coma is not this like white light experience. I remember feeling like people were trying to touch me and I was trying to scream and they had to kind of put me back under and let me come out of it a little, I don't know, I'm not a medical person, so whatever that is. Um, but I, I came out of the coma. Everybody falls down. It's how you get back up that means everything. In the recovery rooms that I go into every day, that story is a dime a dozen. Everybody falls down, but it's how you get back up that means everything, and you can't do it alone. I've, uh, I've buried friends to this, and it's because they think they can't. They don't need the help. They, they can do it by themselves. I got this was the last thing a friend of mine said early on. We buried him three months later. And his mom said to me at the funeral, she hugged me and she said, don't let this go in vain. And I think about that all the time because this isn't my story anymore. This is his story to tell. We left there and my mom made a suggestion on the 10-hour trip ahead that I call a lady who had been sober 30-something years and she wanted to talk to me. I didn't want to call her. The mind of a chronic alcoholic did not leave there happy to be alive. I wanted to stay in Austin. I still wanted to do it. Hole in my neck the size of a quarter. Had to hold it to talk. And I was trying to convince Dr. Berg at Seton Hospital that I could stay in Austin. Needless to say, God reached down and said, I've got other plans for you, little lady. <laughs> and I'm so glad now. I was so mad. I called Dotsie Graham on my way home. And she didn't answer the phone. I was like, hallelujah. <laughs> she called me back the next, not the next day. She called me back a few minutes later. And she said, I can meet you at your mom and dad's house at 8 o'clock in the morning. I looked at my mom like, we're not getting home until like 1 o'clock. And she was like, I'll make coffee. You'll be fine. <laughs> and so this little angel here came and she shared with me her experience, her strength, and her hope. And let me tell you, that day, March 20, whatever that was, 24th or 23rd. It was the first time in my life I could remember saying, I need help. I can't do this alone. My life is unmanageable. And that is when the miracles really started happening. That's when God really showed up. It was like Hosea. and Hosea, there's a verse in chapter 2 that says, and I will call her into the wilderness and I will speak kindly to her. And from there, I will give her the fruitfulness of her vineyard. And my life started coming back. Um, she got me plugged in um, to a 12-step um, program, and to this day, thank God for those rooms. God shows up in those rooms every single day that I'm in there, and He has brought women into my life continually through my life who are earthly angels who have kept me alive during that season of life. Dr. Gubin in high school, Alyssa Frickenschmidt, Dottie Graham, Sarah Walton, all these women who have shown up that God has used. God was skin on for me in those moments, you know. I love seeing how God works now because it's through other people. It's through his word. You know, I have feelings now that I have to deal with. That's what happens when you get sober. You, you have feelings. 
<laughs> that you've covered up for years. Well, those feelings, oftentimes, most oftentimes, are not facts, but it's truth is. I started going places and coming home to my parents' house where I was living, and I would tell them where I went, and that was actually where I went. Like, that was amazing to me, that I told the truth. <laughs> Blew me away. I started being honest, and I started working with women in the rooms. I started working my steps. I started showing up places where I said I was going to show up, most of the time on time, because I learned how to be responsible, and I learned how to be disciplined, and I learned how to have some humility and to ask for help. Um, it wasn't at the suggestion of anyone that I get into a serious relationship and fall in love right when I got sober. <laughs> but that's what happened. <laughs> I did. I fell in love. And, uh, and I'm so grateful now. My husband uh, just celebrated 15 years sober. So we met in our 12-step um, meeting rooms. And God has used him as a consistent. I love One of the things that I love so much about my husband is that he sees God in everything. Like he has this big love, this like Brennan Manning, Bob Goff kind of love that like sees love. Like love does, you know, love does. Love's an action, not a, not a feeling and not a choice. It's an action. And um, so we did. We fell in love and we got married. Have you ever seen Father the Bride? I feel like, and we got married. <laughs> and I'm happy. And, uh, and he has three wonderful children. There's so many things I want to talk about getting sober, and I know I don't have time to do those, but I will tell you that it is not easy, and that's why most people won't do it. Most people don't get sober because this is not an easy journey. One of the myths from people that have never been through or know somebody that's been through um, is that um, I wake up every day like wanting a drink, and that's not true. I'm very grateful that God took away the desire to drink and drug pretty early on, but there are definitely moments throughout the last four years that I have wanted to escape the way I felt. Absolutely. I've had you know, medical consequences from having a life of head trauma. Um, I get scared. I don't know how to deal with my feelings. I react quickly and panic. <laughs> now I'm learning how to breathe and pray and ask God for direction. There is hope. There is healing. I know so many people who have lost loved ones and so many people who have loved ones that are struggling, even in these rooms. And I am, God has used my life as a vessel. And I pray that he continues to, to just mark my time here on this earth as a reflection of the miracles that he has and continues to do in the lives of his people. I've learned that he doesn't love a future version of me any more than he loves me right now. I've learned that we're not promised happiness. We're not promised that things will be easy. This side of eternity, we are not promised that. Uh, we went through a study of Ecclesiastes. We go to Harvest, and we there's a study on Ecclesiastes that we talked about that. And it gave me so much hope to know that it's okay. Things are going to be hard. I have the, the privilege and the honor and the joy of um, having women who walk alongside me now, and I get to, to do that with women. want to um, reach out because I do. I know without a shadow of a doubt that God has put me on this earth to spread the message that Jesus does restore he takes the chains and he breaks them as far as the east is from the west. And he's so faithful. And that little girl who stood in that baptismal at seven years old and said, I want to live my life for Jesus is still that same person today. And Lord willing, March 9th, I'll celebrate four years sober. All right. And I could not do it if it were not for people asking me to share my story continuing to work my program, showing up in the rooms, having women correct me when I'm wrong. And some days it's left, right, left, right, left, right. Mm -hmm. Thank y'all.
for letting me share this message of hope with y'all. I'm really honored and um, it's a privilege to be here. What a beautiful platform. Kelly talks about in her story, she actually uses the phrase, I know God put me on this earth to spread the message that Jesus does restore. And if that is not the basis of what Storytellers is about, I don't know what is. You know, we we have story after story after story of women walking through different instances, different struggles, but they're all the story of redemption. It's all about Jesus meeting us where we are. And And it's just just perfect. Truly accepting us for where we are. We Mm -hmm. all need to be restored. We all lack in some area and we will until we find heaven. You know, it's like Kelly discusses how she turned to alcohol for, you know, as we sometimes say, that cup of courage to be someone who are not. Right, right. And how do we rest in who God created us to be? I I loved um, her talking about, you know, God called her out of the wilderness and just how he calls each one of us out of the wilderness. She referenced Hosea chapter two, and I don't know how many of you are familiar with the book of Hosea, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. um, it really is just about the nation of Israel, you know, turning their back on, on God over and over again, but he continues to, to reach out. Hosea chapter six, uh, verse one says, come, let us return to the Lord. This is this is uh, the nation of Israel talking. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he's going to bind up our wounds. And it's just really, the entire book is just a beautiful example of God's love to a people who have left God behind. And that's what we do so often when we're looking to the things of this world to give us the confidence and the courage to try to be something that the world's telling us we need to be, but it's not mm-hmm. what God mm-hmm. is calling us to be. So I really, I could relate to her just, you know, talking about trying to, trying to fill this void within her with, for her, it was alcohol and drugs to try to fill that void. And, um, and for many, that's what it is, but for others, it can be a plethora of things that, that you turn to, to fill that void. Right. And I mean, the Lord took her to the absolute bottom. I mean, physically, emotionally, spiritually, everything to redeem her out of that pit and to restore her. And, you know, Kelly, the takeaway that I got was once again, we see a woman who found community or looked to community at the end when she came out and she met the the woman who had been 30 years sober and formed a, a relationship with her. Then she was able to have someone who had gone before her and she was able to be honest and, and she knew I need help. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of times God just wants to hear us say, Lord, I need help. Right. Acknowledge um, we need him. That's right. a- absolutely. Absolutely. And he is the only thing that can feel, fill that void. And I would, I would just like to give a word to, you know, if you are struggling with addiction, if you feel like there might be an issue or a problem there, I pray that you would would have somebody that you could be transparent with and that you could talk with because you just need that one person that you can just take your mask off and and show the real you and be honest with them. So, you know, if you know someone and you're concerned about someone, you know, reach out to us. We've had other storytellers that we can connect you with. We would certainly recommend uh, AA or Al-Anon, whatever the case may be, but but I, I have a big heart for if, if you are going through something, please, please get help. That's, you know, she talks about community and the importance mm-hmm. of community. And, and that's so much of what we're trying to build through storytellers is a place of community by 
by being ourselves, but as we, as we find out story after story, who God's created us to be, you know, as we realize that we don't have to live this, this fake life with a mask on or this Instagram ready life, you know, (laughs) that, that we can live the life that God created us to live specifically Mm -hmm. me, specifically you, you know, he created each of us unique. And, and that's what we're here for is, is to show you different ways of being ourselves. I like how Kelly no. said, it's his story, you know, yeah. right. My but, history is his story. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yes. How often we use that tag in, in a lot of our social <laughs> yes. media posts yes. too. Yeah. I even had a, a t-shirt made of that. You did, yeah. Dawn, you did. I know, yeah. for second stories. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, reach out, find, find community, reach out to us, find us online. You know, you can find us at Storytellers Live podcast and storytellers live or sorry storytellerslive.org online and and reach out and find some people you know go back and find some older stories and and we can help connect you again like Lindy said with different people and especially if you know someone that needs to hear this story we do find that stories on addiction are some of our most passed along stories so feel free to pass this along to share it online if you know someone that needs this or if this has has really affected you and God has spoken to you. So thank you for listening today. And we look forward to joining you next week and you'll have a great week. Bye.